All right, good morning, everybody. Yeah? We have uh, the sign-up sheets for camp are out, the registration forms, and also the sign-up for uh, helping if you want to help out this year at camp. It'll be July 5th through the 8th. Um, and so it'll be a good time if you can help us with that. Um, we have a, usually 65 slots. Um, we, we could probably stretch that to 70, I think. Um, so uh, if you know of somebody that wants to come or has asked you about a, getting a registration, go ahead and grab one of those, and if you can get them in as soon as possible. Um, I, I don't think I put a deadline on there. I think, I think June 1st would be great for us to get planning to get everybody in their cabins and all, but I know there's always, inevitably, there's some late sign-ups because they don't know or they have to ask or they have to figure things out and, and so on. So um, anyway, those are out there. Grab one if, you're, if you've got a child that you think would like to come. The ages are 9 to 16 to go to camp, and there's no room for movement on that. No, your 8-year-old who's going to be 9 in fall doesn't count. We can't do it. So 9 years old, by the date of camp, um, they're welcome to join us. Um, we just don't make exceptions in that area. Um, so those are out there if you want to take a look at that. We'll, do, we'll be doing Moera again this year. Um, there is an extra fee of $25 for that, and that's for ages 13 and up. Um, they won't let anybody uh, under the age of 13 on the apparatus because they just haven't formed. Their hips aren't ready yet for a fall with the climbing apparatuses and all that. And uh, um, So anyway, that's 25 extra. So it'll be 100 for... Uh, just the camp, or 125 if you want your kids to do the Moera portion. Okay, that's that. This morning we're going to be in Exodus chapters 37 through 40. We're going to finish up the book. Um, and no, I'm not going to read it all to you, so. <laughs> uh, we'll spend most of our time in 40, but. Um, children of Israel have come a long way. From Egypt to this point, and it hasn't been smooth, but they have seen in these tough times, in these rough situations, in all these circumstances, they've seen their God move and they've discovered who he is. Um, he's strong on their behalf, but he also demands of them as well, obedience. And uh, they've learned both. And it's been a real good thing for them because they do need to know who their God is. They need to have this close relationship with him um, so that they can do well for the rest of their lives. I don't know how you can understand your New Testament relationship with Jesus Christ without studying Genesis and Exodus. I don't think you can. I don't think we can fully grasp it. To think that the Old Testament's for some other time era or group of people, um, I think is a bad mistake. And uh, I think we'll see that today. As we see this tabernacle being put together, remember Moses was given on top of the mountain earlier on in chapter 26, right around there, 25. God had given him a, a pattern for him to follow. This is what I want my worship center to look like. This is what I want my people to do, and this is how I want to be worshipped. And I, I want it to be done just like that. No more, no less. It's probably the best, uh, the best catchphrase you could use for Exodus. No more but no less. This is what I expect and want. And of course, they didn't do so well. They were found worshiping in their own ways uh, when they came down from the mountain, when Moses and Joshua came down from the mountain, they found them worshiping this golden calf. They were tired of waiting for the pattern. They were tired of waiting for instruction. They just went back to worshiping the, what they were used to, 
and they just called it the worship of God. This calf is the one, he is the God that brought us out of the land of Egypt, is what they said. And that wasn't going to be good enough. God, God didn't say that was okay. And, and, and I guess I can't emphasize that enough in 2017, that it's not okay to worship him however you see fit, from whatever religious standpoint we see fit in this world. If that was the case, then God's upset over nothing. Because if Islam is okay, and if all these other religions is okay, then he certainly should have given the folks in Egypt a break because they were doing the best they could with sincerity. But they were wrong. And God says, I'm a person to be known, to be discovered. You're supposed to ask me about how I feel about things. You're supposed to find out my opinion on the matter. And then you're supposed to do those things because I am the one that created you. This is my world. This is my creation. You are part of it. To exclude me or to disregard my opinions on these things is, is foolish. And so he spends a lot of time letting the world know, no, this ignorant worship in the past is no longer acceptable. This is how I must be worshipped. This is what I want. No more, no less. So in 37, after Moses last week had given all of the instructions to the people and they began to bring all that they uh, had, you know, uh, their offerings to the Lord, these free will offerings, all that were stirred in their heart began to drop these uh, materials off, raw materials to be used for this tabernacle. They said, that's enough. We don't want any more. We've got too much already. And it was a beautiful scene and encouraged us to be generous, not only in our financial giving to the poor and to those around us or to God's work, but also in our time and in our worship of Him. It's to be extravagant as much as our Father is extravagant with us. And we can't spoil God by giving him too much back, you know, is the idea. So they said that's enough. And so they began to get the guys together and to build, and, and they did. And that's what 37 and 38 are about. I'm not going to read it to you. 37, the first thing, verses 1 through 9, is the building of the Ark of the Testimony. Inside that Ark is the Aaron's rod, the manna. And the Ten Commandments are inside that. And on top of that is the mercy seat. It's designed to be the lid. And of course, this whole thing, this whole Ark of the Testimony with the mercy seat represents God's throne in heaven here on earth. And we'll discover that here at the end of 40 when God's glory descends and rests upon it. That's the first item that's been made. Verses 10 through 16, he makes the table for the showbread. This is simply a gold table where they would set the 12 loaves of bread on top of. And this is to your right as you walk into the tabernacle, this showbread table. And the bread would be changed out daily. And it's on the right-hand side there. Verses 17 through 24, it's the making of the gold lampstand. One talent. It's one solid piece. Um, and it had seven lamps on it. And we'll see what that means later on. And that would be to your left as you walk into the tabernacle. Showbread on the right, lampstand on the left. Making the altar of incense. This would be straight in front of you as you walk into the tabernacle. You've got the bread on the right, the lampstand on the left. Why am I repeating it? So it's memorized. And then you have the altar of incense to the front. That's the point of a word picture. That's the point of object lessons in Sunday school. This is all this is. This is Sunday school for the world. And it's a big object lesson for them to memorize and so that every time they come into this place, they understand the steps and the needs and, and all for the worship of God. 
And so that's why I want us to memorize it. I want us to see it in our mind. I want you to be able to close your eyes and see these things. So they built this altar of incense. It's in the middle. Then finally they make the anointing oil and the incense. They would anoint everything with the oil and they would burn the incense on this altar of incense. And it was only to be used in the worship of God. It could not be used uh, for a night on the town on Saturday. You know, can't put any of that oil of incense on because it's just got that special zing, you know, to it. No, it's simply for God. It's all for God. It belongs to nobody else to bring them glory. It's meant to bring God glory, and that's what it's intended to be used for. And we see that. In chapter 38, we have verses 1 through 8. And this is the making of the uh, altar of burnt offerings. And then also, oh, yeah, 1 through through 7, excuse me. That's the altar of burnt offerings. Uh, and that was where they would offer up the animal sacrifices for the sins of the nation and for the sins of the priests. The next one is 8, verse 8 only. It's the bronze lavier. This is where they would bathe and get washed and cleansed. This is for the priests and for the work and for the service of the tabernacle. So you have as you're walking up to this curtained-in area, which is described in verses 9 through 20, this curtained courtyard all the way around this tabernacle that's being built. You walk into the curtain gates, and right in front of you, you see the altar of burnt offerings, the sacrifice, the sin sacrifice. The next thing you see as you walk up is this big brass labia, so big that they could climb into it, bathtub size, bigger than bathtub size. Then as you're done with the altar of burnt offerings, the water the baptism there, and then also you go up into the tabernacle, and right in front of you is the altar of incense where the prayers would be offered up. Over to your right would be over the showbread table, and over to your left would be the lamp. And then there's the curtain. On the other side of the curtain is God's chair. It's his throne. It's that Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top. And that's the layout. And all this is done in verse 21 through... uh, Through the rest of the chapter of 38, he describes how much it took. 2,000 pounds of gold were used, 8,750 pounds of silver and so on to to make this amazing place, this amazing jewel in the center. It was meant to be set up in the center of the camp. Everybody could have equal walking distance to get to it, but it was in the center. It was meant for them to look in and He was to be the core, the center of their walk as a nation with their God. He didn't want to be on the edge. He didn't want to be on the outside. He didn't want to be uh, one of many buildings. He wanted to be the focus and the center, and everything revolves around it and couldn't miss it. Couldn't miss it, especially when he shows up. You can't miss it. Verse 39, or chapter 39, verses, uh, verse 1, they begin to make the garments that the guys are supposed to wear, the the priests were going to wear. They made the ephod and all, verses 2 through 7. Verses 8 through 21, they make the breastplate that he would wear over top of the priestly garments. And he describes it in detail. It's called lights of perfection with this beautiful stones, all 12 stones of representing each tribe of Israel with the black onyx on each shoulder. We've discussed that. And they would ask questions, and we don't know how, but they could tell by the stones which tribe was supposed to go where and do what and so on. It was an amazing piece of gear that they had made. Verses 22 um, all the way to 31. 
He begins to describe the other things that the tunics and so on, that the, that they, the guys would wear, the priests and the underlings would wear, um, the underservers. And finally, it's done. They began to make all these things. They got it all done. It says in verse 32, Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, the tent and all its furnishings. And he describes all the things that they brought to him. In verse 42, According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. That Moses looked over all the work, and indeed they had done it, as the Lord had commanded, just so they had done it. And Moses blessed them. So they present this. Moses gives them the blueprint. They build it just exactly what God wanted, no more, no less. They bring it to Moses to inspect, to get the final approval, and he says, yep, this is exactly what God said. This is exactly what I was shown up there And it could be blessed then at that time, but not until. Not until it was done just as God had said could the blessing be given. This is important for us. In chapter 40, we see that they build this tabernacle. They put it together. They're actually getting ready for worship in this place on the first day of the first month in the second year. They put this tent together. It's the first time anybody's seen it all in one place, all set up. It was all made separately in different places by different people according to the pattern God had said. And when they put it together, there it was. Just the way it was supposed to be. It says in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall put it in it, the ark of the testimony, and partition off the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange the things that are to be set in order on it. You shall bring in the lampstand and 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 light its lamps. You shall also set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. Then you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and you shall set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. You shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen at the court gate. And you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and you shall hallow it and all its utensils, and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar, set it apart. The altar shall be most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and its base and consecrate it and set it apart. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. You shall put the holy garments on Aaron and anoint him and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. You shall bring his sons and clothe them with tunics. You shall anoint them as you anointed the father, their father, that they may minister to me as priests, for the anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations." Thus Moses did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. No more, no less. And it came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up its boards 
put in its bars and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the temple, hang up the veil, uh, hung up the veil, excuse me, of the, of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil, and he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he lit the lamps before the Lord and the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and he put water there uh, for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they came near the altar, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around, the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. It's a lot of stuff to do. It's one thing to get the plan and the blueprint. It's a whole other thing to actually execute this plan. And they did it. They all did it. They did it exactly the way God wanted to. It's perfect. You can't improve upon this. You can't add to it. There's nothing more to make it better. I don't know how many different ways we could possibly say that, but this is, it's done. It's finished. There's nothing more. It's very interesting that Jesus said the exact same words at the cross. It's finished. There's nothing more you can do. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. No more, no less. It's absolutely perfect the way it stands. He has finished the work. You can't put this tradition with it. You can't add this to it. I don't know if anybody walked by this tabernacle and wondered why it was built the way it was built or wondered why they do the things they do and how come this and not that. Couldn't we add on over here and make a little group meeting over here? Couldn't we add in over here and do this thing over here? What if we did this over here? You know, they're doing that over there. It's perfect as is. It's exactly. No more, no less. We're going to discover, unfortunately, as we get into the rest of the Old Testament here, that the children of Israel get bored. They become discontent. No more do they enjoy the the manna. No more do they enjoy this way of worship. They want to add to it. It's tiring. It becomes mundane to them. And it's absolutely perfect the way God wants it. I don't want any more and I don't want any less. I want it just like this, he says to them. It's finished. I don't think I've ever been in a house that was finished. (laughs) It's done. There's nothing more we could add. There's nothing more we could take away from this. Let's just be, we're finished. Now let's, I took a little video on Saturday. 
I didn't share it with anybody. I'm sitting on the back swing. The two kids are, Bo and Mariah are jumping on the trampoline. My two daughters are beside me. Jenny was inside. We were making her work. No, she, she wanted to do something, and she's going to join us, and she did later on. But for the video, she wasn't in it. She was inside doing something. And, uh, but she came out shortly afterwards. And I looked down at my feet, you know, and all I saw were my flip-flops and this absolutely stunning, beautiful green grass. This patch of the yard, anyway, was nice. And the sun was out, and it was warm, and we had done everything we were going to do that day. And we're just sitting there, and I'm rocking on this swing, and I'm looking at my feet saying, I, everything I do all week long is for this moment right here. Everything is for this right here. I mean, that's why I go to work. That's why I do what I do. That's why we have Bible studies. This is why, because here we sit doing this. And so I just, I got to take a video of this because that's what you do, right? You can't just enjoy the moment. You got to capture it. You ever find yourself behind the lens of a camera and you miss the event? Oh. You just need to just, you know, it's just going to be a memory. It's not going to be documented, but I had to document anyway. So I sit there and I took a picture of my feet because I like my feet. We're rocking back and forth. And I look up at the kids and I look at my girls and the girls are like, okay, how long are you going to have that camera on me, Dad? This is awkward. It's just such a great time. It's like you felt complete. It was finished. We're done. This is it. This is why we do it. Now, Monday's coming, I know. But right now, this is, you know. And what a great feeling that was. So much so that I had to capture it on film. You know, it was just like, this is so rare, you know. 30 minutes. But how, how they could have had, and we can have, years and years and years of that time on that porch swing or whatever it is we have in our backyard, that swing. It's finished. It's done. Just Enjoy. No more, no less. We don't need to do gardening. I don't have to mow. I don't have to make this or plant that or pull that out or paint that or do whatever. Let's just be right here, right now, you know, all the time in Christ, worshiping. I don't have to add. I'm complete. So Moses finished the work. It's done. It's set up. It's ready to go. It says this in verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. What an absolutely wonderful existence. I have a hard time just sitting still and not going onward. And I keep trying to get God to move sometimes. Come on, let's go do we're, We've been sitting here long enough. I can't stand this, you know. I try to get him to move and to wiggle, and he's like, I'm not, I don't want to go anywhere. I want you to be right here right now. And I just have to learn, and I'm learning, that when he moves, then I move. When I see him move from the location that we're at to the next one, that's when I pack up my gear and I go on with him. But for now, he wants me to stay here, and there's, there must be some serious value to that. There must be some learning things that I need to go through here, or just he wants me to have rest because 
it's a mountain ahead that we're going to have to climb. So I want you to sit here for a while. For whatever reason, he's staying put. And that's okay. And I need to let it be okay. Right now, he says, all I want you to do is get up in the morning and worship and enjoy and sit back. Yeah, you got the daily routine. You got to make some food. You got to get some water, so on. But I've made that pretty easy too. The man is right outside your tent door. Enough for today. Not enough for tomorrow, but enough for today. I've given you even some quail. You get some meat now and then. Not enough for tomorrow, but enough for today. It's good. I've given you this rock that spews out water. Fresh, clean, probably the best water in the entire world. If it comes from God, it's got to be right. You don't have to walk very far for that. And you spring it and it's going to be great. And you're just going to have to trust it's going to be flowing tomorrow. I know it's the desert and I know your tendency is to gather and hoard and get as much as you can into pots all around your place. But trust me, it's just going to keep flowing. So all you really need is a cup about this big or how much you drink for the day and go get some. you know. And then I want you to worship. This whole setup, this whole thing is a picture of our walk with Jesus Christ. The whole thing is about Him. It's all about Him. Jesus said, the volume of the book is written of me. And forever, we try to make more out of this. But legalistically wise, you know, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Maybe we should be doing this. When actually, it's just a picture of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and our walk with Him. And so I wanted to take you through the tabernacle one more time in light of the New Testament, in light of Christ. If you turn to John chapter 1, Verse 29, John the Baptist is on the scene and he's been baptizing people and he's been waiting for the Messiah. He's been preparing the way for the Messiah. He says this in verse 29 as Jesus comes along. This is his cousin who he's known for years. But he sees him differently today. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As you walk into the tabernacle area, you come into the court, and the first thing you see is the altar of sacrifice. The first thing everybody needs to know on their way towards the tabernacle as they draw near to God or try to draw near to God is that sin has to be taken care of. You cannot go a step further until we take care of the sin offering. And The first thing we run into as we come closer to Christ is that He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the one offered up for our sins at the cross. Everybody had to go through this process in order to draw near to the actual throne room of God. They had to go past this altar of burnt offerings, and that's the first stop. The disciples had that moment. They had that time where they were born again, but then Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, I want you to wait now in Jerusalem, (coughs) excuse me, for the power which is going to come from on high. See, most would think that the very next step after you get the altar of sacrifice is that brass savior, aha, aha, water baptism. That's not what happens to the disciples, though. See, the disciples were baptized a long time ago. And then they came to the altar of sacrifice of Jesus Christ, realizing he was the one that was going to die for their their sins on the cross. But then he tells them, I want you to wait in Jerusalem, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist told them that. 
Continuing on in that same section in John chapter 1, the next thing he says in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he, is, he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. That brass labia represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the next thing that comes into our lives as believers. Altar of sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1, actually Acts chapter 2 as they're waiting in Jerusalem. They're baptized with the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3.21 qualifies that, clarifies that, in case we get confused about that. That baptism of the Holy Spirit and how important it is. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to Him. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that gives us that clean conscience towards God, which allows us and fills us with the power to do the next things that we have to do in our walk with Jesus Christ. And that's to go into the tabernacle. Tabernacles divided up into two areas, his side and our side. Our side is the part that we need to be concerned with. There's not much we can do about his side. We can't do much about the throne. There isn't really anything for us to do. We don't sit on it. That's his. But our side is vital to understand what these three items represent inside this tabernacle. To the left, you have the lampstand. It's got seven different lamps on it, which is kind of strange unless you understand some of the scriptures. And you turn to Matthew chapter 5 in our walk with Jesus. He declares to us that we're the light of the world. But only after we're filled with the Spirit can we actually be the light of the world because it's His light shining through us. And so in Matthew chapter 5, if I can get there fast... Beginning in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we're called to do, filled with the Spirit to be testimonies of Him, to light the world, to be light to show them that's darkness and this is light we expose things that you couldn't see in the dark normally we don't do anything we don't make anybody do anything we don't really even open our mouths except we stand there and give light to all around and that's what the lampstand does for this room that's what he does for our hearts so as we're filled with the holy spirit and christ comes into our lives all of a sudden the light is in our hearts and it's shining and illuminating Now, why seven? 
If you turn to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. A controversial scripture because most don't know what it means. As John writes to the seven churches which are in Asia, which also could represent lights to different parts of the world or different seasons in the church. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Seven spirits of God. Wait a minute, I thought there was one. Well, there is. It's one lampstand. But if you turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, he describes these seven works of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. I know we're jumping around, but it's all right. We can do it. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. All seven of these should be represented in our lives as Christians. It's what lights the world. We have the Lord, we have wisdom, we have understanding, we have counsel, we have might, we have knowledge, and we have fear of Him, not of man. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so on. And these things should be represented. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that should be shining out. Boy, that's a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom. I can't believe that that came out of your mouth, you know. Yeah, it wasn't me. You know, it's the Lord. And we light and we shine. It's an amazing thing when you have a group of leaders that are filled with the Holy Spirit, how much more wisdom there is. And the things of this world and the wisdom of this world looks like foolishness compared to the folks that are actually listening to God and paying attention to Him. That's what the lampstand does. The next thing we see in, in our walk with Jesus Christ is in front of us we have that altar of incense. That's our prayer. Way too many scriptures to take you to as far as prayer goes. But that prayer is supposed to be continual. It doesn't ever stop. When Paul says that to us, I want you to pray without ceasing. It's the biggest, one of the biggest problems in the garden was that the guys couldn't stay awake to pray. It's one of the first uh, attacks we have is our flesh doesn't want to pray. We're too tired. We're too sleepy. We've done enough. I don't know if I can handle it anymore. And we fall asleep like Peter did. But Jesus says, I want you to pray lest you fall into temptation. It wasn't that he was mad that they weren't praying for him. How could you not do this one thing for me? Although he does say that. But more importantly, he says, I want you to pray so that you don't enter into temptation. It's for us to pray and to pray for others. That's what the priest would have to do. He'd walk in and make intercessory prayer for himself praying about the sacrifice he offered outside and so on and the washing that took place and he came in and filled up the oil and the lamps there to make sure that those, those burned continually. That continual filling of the Holy Spirit. I, I, I think that's funny when the church teaches that you, know, you just get one time and yet the priest filled up those lamps continually. They had to continually replenish that oil so that it would continually burn and we Likewise, and we see that example in the book of Acts with the apostles constantly being filled with the Spirit. 
But this prayer needs to happen all the time also. It needs to be in a continual state of prayer. Praying for people, praying for ourselves, praying for situations, praying for our leaders, praying for the world. Because that's what we do. To your right, you have the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. He says so in Matthew chapter 4, 4, and that's what we share, and that's what we teach. We are the light through our example. We just are. That's what we do. My walk with Jesus is a testimony to what Christ can do with a broken, hurting person. Without words, I walk and I am light. I pray. That's something I do between me and the Lord. No one else needs to hear it. It's what I do with God. But we can pray together too. It's nothing wrong with that, but that's something. But this, this bread of life is meant to be shared. You know, they just made the table and it was the bread... 12 loaves that represented the actual tribes of Israel, which means those, those loaves were them. And they were meant to be, first of all, sanctified and set apart for this purpose only. That wasn't, you know, except for David. He's the only one that ever got to eat of that, and the priests got to eat of it too. But David was the only one that came in and ate of that bread at one point. But that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to share this. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And we share that with people. That's part of us that we give away to other people. The prayer is between us and God. The light, that's just something we are. But this bread of life that we share with other people is all that matters. And here's the thing with that. In Exodus, as Moses has been given the pattern, it was completely up to the people whether they followed the pattern or not, whether they did it. All Moses could do was give out the pattern. Here's what we're supposed to do. And they built it. And they did all that God had commanded them. No more, no less. Likewise, with the bread of life, we give it out to those around us. Friends, family, co-workers, strangers, enemies. We give out the bread of life. It's completely up to them whether they actually use it or not. Whether they obey it or not. We have no bearing on that at all. I have no, I have no way I can plead with them. I can reason with them, but you can't make a horse drink. You can only lead him to the water. And that's what we're to do. And you can't worry about it when they don't eat, when they don't partake, when they don't get it, when they don't receive it, when they don't follow it according to the pattern, that they don't do all that the Lord has commanded them, that they're not obedient in these areas. There's nothing you can do about that, and nor can we feel bad about it. Our job is to simply sit there as bread on the table prepared and ready. It's up to them. Now, Jesus being that veil, it's been torn from top to bottom. On the other side of that veil is that Ark of the Covenant, with inside of it being the rod of Aaron, which means he has all authority and rules. Inside of it is that manna. He's our provider. He's our savior. He's the bread that comes from heaven. Inside of it are the Ten Commandments, perfection, absolute perfection. This is what perfection looks like. Jesus, with one moment on the cross, has ripped apart that veil so that now what used to be his room and our room is now our room. That's why we go to heaven. That's why we can go in there. We can actually go to his throne room. His real chair, his real throne is in heaven. We know that, right? People are awfully worried about where the Ark of the Covenant is today. It was a symbol. The reason we don't have it is because we'd all be worshiping it right now. He had to get rid of that or hide it or put it someplace. It was representative of his throne. And because of all this, because Jesus 
died on the cross for our sins, all those people that have come to the altar of sacrifice, gone to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, seen the, been the light, been in prayer, offered up the bread of life, we boldly come to that throne, as J.C. prayed earlier, because Christ has ripped that veil from top to bottom. The thing that separated us from him has now been torn, and we can boldly come there. I get concerned when I, the church, um, because I can't worry about the world, they're going to do what they do. But when the church decides that this scripture isn't of God, and this scripture is of God, and they begin to go through this Bible, and the volume of the book is written of him, they begin to part out and piece out Jesus Christ himself. I find it interesting that When the bride of Christ decides not to heed the words of her husband, it's interesting which verses they decide to carve out of the Bible. All of those that have to do with the teaching of submitting to the husband get removed because it's way too uncomfortable to have to teach that when you don't do that. The church submits to Christ. We're supposed to anywhere. Submission is this. When we disagree, we obey. That's what submission is. It's not when we agree. That's easy, you know. I'm going to provide manna for you each and every day in abundance. I agree. That's not submission. (laughs) Submission is only picking up enough for the day. And that's when we struggle. We have been given a pattern for our walk with Jesus Christ. No more, no less. We've been given the absolute everything that we need. There's nothing more to add or take away from it. And until I have made my life, because I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit now, and I'm filled with the Spirit, and I have the bread of life, and I am where I pray How can the Shekinah glory, how can he rest? How can he come and rest upon me unless I've made it according to the pattern? My walk with Jesus needs to be made according to the pattern. I can't leave out prayer. I can't leave out testifying of him in my walk with the Lord. In other words, I have a pure, holy life, sanctified, set apart. My light so shines among the world. I can't open my mouth without preaching the word of God but only my worldly wisdom or what I've read in the latest psychology book. No, I'm the bread of life. I'm supposed to be sharing the bread of life with people. How can the Shekinah glory rest on the tabernacle as he comes and wants to be inside of me? How can he rest there when I haven't made it according to the pattern? You can't skip any of the steps. We can't get rid of any of the things. It's so important to understand we have to make it according to the pattern. No more, no less. You're here on Sunday morning. I'm preaching to the choir, right? But when God shows you something that needs to go because he doesn't want that in his tabernacle, it has to go. When he says, I want you to add this to the tabernacle, you you have to add it. It's not an opinion. It's not his thoughts on the matter. I want 
it to be made. I want your life to be made according to the pattern. No more and no less. You have to have Jesus as your sacrifice. You must be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to be a light to this world. I want you to be in prayer. I want you to be sharing the bread of life with those around you. That's what I want. I don't want anything that gets in between or in the way of those things in your life, in my life. So he's made us that. He's shown us that. This tabernacle, it's all a shadow. And Christ is the fulfillment of that shadow. He is the one that casts that shadow. You know, He wants us to be in him and have that completely. I don't know if you've noticed it, but as you walk in this world and you run into um, other folks, um, it's easy to spot differences. Biblical differences, not just differences in hair color or styles or voice tones or whatever, you know. But differences in their worship, and you notice things that are missing sometimes. And it's easy to do that. It's easy for me to spot things missing in other people's lives. It's very easy for me to do that. Where's your lamp? can't just snuff out your lamp and walk around and say that you're the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. You need to be, you know. Where's your prayer? Why don't you pray? Well, I don't do that. But God said you're supposed to and he wants us to, you know. Where's your prayer life? What about the bread of life? Why aren't you sharing Christ? Why doesn't Jesus come off of your lips? Why doesn't he come off of my lips? Why don't I talk about him? It's supposed to be there. It's part of it. Where's that baptism of the Holy Spirit? Not what he did 20 years ago, but what's he done recently? You know, Where's he moving? How's he moving? Then at the end of all this, once we have our lives together, because it's easy to spot everybody else's problems, we need to examine our own life. Where's my stuff? Is it all there? You know, What's missing? How come? It's not as great as it's supposed to be. Where is the Shekinah glory? How come I'm not experiencing the fullness of God? Where is that? You can ask and you can ask and you can beg God to give you the fullness of the glory of God in your life, but these things have to be present. It's got to be complete. No more, no less. They have to be there. And then we have to be content with it. No pun intended. Get it content with it? Not adding on to it. Not saying, okay, I've got all these things. I've got my witness. I've got my prayer life. I've got my bread of life. I'm sharing the gospel. I've been filled with the Spirit. I've got Jesus. I've got the throne. I'm in his room and all, but I don't know. Maybe I should try this, that, or the other thing. And that's as bad as not having one of these pieces in the tent. Adding on isn't acceptable. It's not allowed. It ruins it. Why don't I have the fullness of the glory of God? Maybe it isn't that you don't have one of these things. Maybe that you've added something to your worship of God that's not supposed to be there. It's not prescribed. That needs to go as well. Just right there. Just perfect. Just complete. And it's amazing what God does with the nation of Israel when they're content with him, when they're complete in him, they're not looking for more, they're not doing less, they're 
absolutely unstoppable and the most amazing things happen in their lives because the worship of their God is right where it's supposed to be. Everything else falls into place. Their foes fall before them. The provision and the crops just explode. The rain, we get the ladder and we have the former rains. Everything that you hear about Israel, it's all the only time it gets messed up, the only time their enemies don't fall before them, the only time the provision isn't there, the only time that the rain isn't falling like it used to is when this is messed up. They've either added to it or they've taken away from this perfect, complete worship of God. That's usually the question I get the most. I've done all that. I, I still don't have that peace. I have a hard time with those statements. I've done all that. I've done everything the Bible said. It just sounds like that rich young ruler. If everything's so perfect, and that you really want me to say that God's word works in my life, but apparently it doesn't work in your life, you really want that to be said out loud? Because that's essentially what we're saying. I've done everything. I don't know why it's falling apart. My guess is you don't haven't done everything or you've done too much. Taking away is just as hard as adding to. And so examine your hearts daily, you know, weekly, monthly, annually. Write it down. What what is what does my walk with Jesus look like? Or have I added something to it that wasn't essential, that wasn't, it was of me, it wasn't of him. I thought I could make it a part of my worship. I thought I could add to it. I thought God would bless it if I attached it to the tent. But he hasn't, you know. Then let it go, you know. Get rid of it. Get rid of it with malice, with intent, you know, purposefully. And on the other side of things, I don't know why I don't have, or it's not like it used to be. My walk with Jesus is stale. It's dry. I don't know. I'm going through a desert right now. Even in the desert, they had a lot of water. The circumstances shouldn't change my walk with Jesus. They shouldn't. And so I'm not rebuking, and I'm, I'm not doing any. I hope it doesn't come across that way. I'm, I'm trying to help with all those questions that aren't asked this morning why or how or whatever. This is why and this is how. This is what he's given us in his word. This is the pattern he set before us. Follow it. It absolutely works 100% of the time completely in every person's life if they follow the pattern. Always, without fail. Our God never, ever fails. He never falls short. He never stops honoring his word. Ever. His word always accomplishes what it was set out to do. It never, ever returns void. I'm adding some of these extras in there, but that's what his word says about him. That's what he says about himself. You are complete in Christ. There's nothing to add to what Christ has done on the cross. You're complete in him. Your fellowship and your relationship with God can't get any better than in Christ. And our circumstances should never change our walk with Jesus desert or downpour, our walk with Jesus maintains steady. It stays true. So there's hope is the idea behind all of that.
there's hope. It's not lost. You aren't doing something necessarily wrong that can't be fixed. Just change it. How do I know what to change? How do I know what's not of him? Well, first of all, you read his word, but secondly, pray and ask God to show you what needs to go. What is bringing this on? Where is this coming from? And if you ask for wisdom from God, he will always give you wisdom. Ask it. What am I missing? I want to see this. And then add it. Don't go up the mountain and ask God these questions without a full intent of implementing them when you get back down. If you go up the mountain to ask of God what needs to be taken away or what needs to be added, be prepared for something to be taken away. Be prepared for something to be added. And then absolutely do it when you get down. Otherwise, it looks like calf worship again. Well, not that bad. Well, anything outside of God's plan, outside of his pattern, is something that we're worshiping. We're doing ourselves. We're adding to it. This is the God that brought me out of Egypt. It's just a very subtle thing at times. Stay true. Stay to the pattern. Ask of him. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this tabernacle. I pray, God, that we would never forget this. That this picture that you've set up for us as our big Sunday school class this morning, you've given us this great object lesson for us to always remember how our walk with you should look with this altar of sacrifice and you, Jesus, being that sacrifice. That baptismal that's there where you baptize us with the Holy Spirit before we begin our service to you. As we go into our service of you, we're light to this world. We're prayer warriors. We're also share the bread of life with those around us. And because you've ripped that veil from top to bottom, we are in constant fellowship with you. We thank you for that, God. We are complete right there. Lord, help us now to share this with those around us, Lord, to be that light, a changed person, a broken vessel that's been healed and cleansed by you, that they might see what you can do for someone like us is the same thing that you can do for someone like them. As we pray for people, God, we pray that we pray for them, that we lift up their needs and their concerns. Of course, we have our own, but we want to never leave that prayer closet without lifting them up also. And then, Lord, help us to be ready in season and out of season to give a reason for the hope which lies within us, to share your bread with those around us, God. Not our ideas, not our pop psychology, God, but your word, which changes people. And then, Lord, also help us to just enjoy this fellowship with you. This entrance into heaven that we have based off of your son's work at the cross, it's complete and finished. And I can put that in the rearview mirror. I'm going to heaven because of what you did. And I rest and trust in that. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Now I just want to tell others. And so we'll bless these folks today. Lord, there's a lot of graduations today and there's other things going on. Opportunities to share, to witness. Help us to be faithful, Lord. To be that light today, especially. And to share your word. And that's how we pray at this altar. In Jesus' name. Amen.